Oh, Father, I would pray, oh God, in your grace right now, that you would come and meet with us. God, help us to see really the, the truth of your word. Open our eyes that we might not be those who, who think we know it all and yet really know nothing. God, we think we rely on our zeal and our passion, and yet that's not enough. God, it's relying solely upon Jesus Christ that is enough and sufficient. So, Lord, I would pray in your grace you would open eyes and ears and hearts right now. God, help me teach teach a word with accuracy and clarity and passion and truth. God, lead us to you. Lead us to Christ, oh God, through these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, pop quiz. Anyone know who this guy is? If you know, this would be like, like I'd be shocked and floored. Okay? He's not a really well-known guy. Um, however, uh, John Krakow wrote a book about him called Into the Wild. Anyone know who this is yet? Do you remember his name? His name is uh, Christopher McCandless. And uh, his, his life has really been made famous because of this book. I picked this book up, um, I don't know, maybe a year or two ago, and, and I remember reading it, and it was a, it was a great book, and it describes um, McCandless and, and how he, he had his passion to live free, apart from the constraints of society, and actually ended up dying in uh, Alaskan wilderness because of his lack of knowledge of the dangers that he was, was facing. He was born in 1968. Puts him slightly younger than I am. Graduated from high school in 1986. His teachers and fellow students described him as one who marched to a different drummer. It's no surprise that when he graduated from college in 1990, he had $24,000 of savings and he gave that away to charity. He adopted a, a vagabond lifestyle and he adopted the name Alexander Supertramp. It's kind of the name that, that he adopted for himself. He traveled all through America, and he just worked temporary jobs, kind of just enough to help keep his, his traveling vagabondness addiction going. Um, in April of 1992, he hitchhiked up to Fairbanks, Alaska, where he intended to spend the summer in the bush, living off the land. His goal was that he wanted to live such a place that he didn't see a single person not a single airplane, not a single sign of civilization all summer long. He wanted to prove to himself and to the world that he could make it on his own without anyone else's help. And he wrote in his diary the day he arose, he arrived in Alaska. He says, today I finally reached the great white north of Alaska, the birthplace and beginning of my odyssey. This is the final and greatest adventure that I will ever undertake. And so he went to town in Fairbanks and uh, loaded up a few supplies. That meant like a 10-pound bag of rice, and it meant a gun. And uh, he headed out for town. It was about a three-hour drive away, heading out to the Stampede Trail. And uh, his first night he spent on a four, four miles out, on a uh, kind of just off the side of the road, on a, on a patch of hard-frozen ground surrounded by birch trees. In the morning, he, he gathered up his stuff, started walking along the road. The first vehicle along the way, he put his thumb out and picked up a ride from a man named Jim Galleon, an electrician on his way to Anchorage. And uh, he was the last person to see him alive, was Galleon. But he gave him this three-hour ride up the road to the Stampede Trail, which you can see there is on the northern part of Denali National Park. And McCandless, he said, could hardly contain his excitement. He was at long last about to be alone in the Alaskan wilds. Um, but he was totally, incredibly 
unprepared for the things that awaited him. And uh, Jim Galleon, who, who rode up three hours kind of talking with him about his life, about his perspective, about everything that he was going after, he, he said, you know what, I, I'm not sure you're prepared. Let, let, let's, let's detour to Anchorage. That's where he was going anyway. Let's go to Anchorage. We'll get some ample supplies, and then we'll get you out into the woods where you can do it. And McCandless, or Alexander Supertramp, just ignored his persistent warnings and refused his offers of assistance, and so he went on. He got on the trail and headed west and found the going much more difficult than he imagined. Uh, about 10 miles in he, he, to his hike, he crossed the frigid Teklanika River, and then another 10 miles down the road, he, he found a bus um, where he, he stayed in for a little bit, and then as he went beyond, he found it too hard, and basically then this bus became his home. And we know what happened to him because he kept a journal of, of everything he did. He hunted game and foraged for edible plants, but he went in April, and so like not a lot was blooming at that time. And uh, when he did catch some porcupines along the, the way, he was excited about that. He took pictures about uh, what that was. He did happen to kill a moose, um, but he didn't understand how to smoke it and keep it. And so within a week, it was so rotten that he couldn't use it at all. It was all wasted. And he even said, I wish I hadn't even killed the moose. Um, here's a famous picture of him in front of his bus. As the days passed, he found himself in conditions too difficult. So after 67 days in the wild, he decided, I got to go back. And uh, so he went back. And the river that he crossed in late April was looking far different here in mid-June um, with a snow melt that had just rushed apart. No longer was it a river he could walk across, but this was a, a torrent that would be dangerous. And he wrote in his journal, river look impossible, lonely, scared. He returned to his bus where he stayed, and a month later he wrote to his journal, day 100, made it. But in the weakest condition of life, Death looms as a serious threat, too weak to walk out, have literally become trapped in the wild, no game. Thirteen days later was his last journal entry, and his last diary entry reads like this. And uh, here he is, kind of right at the end, the last picture of him as he's emaciated. He said, this may be my last entry. I, I cannot move. I have, have not eaten in three days. I'm trapped in my sleeping bag due to weakness. Hopefully my family is doing well and my death does not pain them too much. It was a literal once-in-a-lifetime chance to be able to experience a life without any interaction or connection with the outside world. To my family, do not grieve my demise. Celebrate my existence. I've experienced more in the past two years than I ever did previously. I love each one of you. I've had a happy life and thank the Lord. Goodbye and may God bless you all. And a few weeks later, a moose hunter found his partially decomposed body in a sleeping bag in his bus. And, and as a result of that story, then Krakauer's bestseller here, Into the Wild, he's become kind of like a, a, a cult figure, if you will. Um, many have, have sought out on this adventure, on the Stampede Trail, to find the bus. And many of uh, these people with a similar spirit have this, uh, the pilgrimage they make. Like Muslims would go to Mecca. <clears throat> there are some people who go to find the bus, and they want to experience it. So they take pictures of themselves right there along the bus of where, where McCandless was, sometimes going out in the truth. But, but the hike is still, still difficult. As a dozen or so of these pilgrims every year need to be rescued by the park authorities as they face some of the similar problems he has. Helicopters goes out and, and rescues them. But here's the lesson. 
Zeal without knowledge can be deadly. Zeal without knowledge can be deadly. And that's the, the testimony of his life, is that he went out there without knowledge of really how to, how to handle things, and it proved deadly. Well, that is the, the title of my message this morning, is Zeal Without Knowledge, from Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. You can take your Bibles and, and open them. Uh, if you're, you have, didn't bring a Bible today, and just have a, a pew Bible in front of you, page 946, we'll, we'll get you there. And in these verses, we're going to see not a, a freedom-seeking vagabond who went on a journey unprepared, but we're going to see highly zealous religious people living their lives without knowledge of the righteousness of God, and their end is just as tragic as Alexander Supertramp's end was. Romans 10, 1 through 4, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of a law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I have five points this morning, really simple, just kind of working through the text. My first is this, desiring their salvation. We see that in verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is... For them is that they may be saved. In this verse, Paul brings up the, the main topic of Romans 9-11. through 11, That is the salvation of, of Israel. And when Paul wrote these words, much like in our day, Israel was in a state of unbelief. They hadn't believed in their Messiah. They had rejected Him. They had crucified Him upon the cross. And not only did they reject Him initially crucified on the cross, but when the message came of the, the gospel to hear it, they rejected that as well as the gospel came into their synagogues, whether it's Paul or, or Peter or other missionaries. They went out and told of Jesus. They rejected them well in Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth. You just read the book of Acts and you can see how they rejected their Messiah. You name the place, the Jews rejected the gospel. And Paul, rather than seeing this coldly or with, with vengeance like James and John who wanted to thunder down fire, right? Thunder down fire from heaven upon those who rejected Jesus. Paul responded tenderly. He's affected deep in his soul that his kinsmen, his brothers, his fellow Jews were unbelieving and on their way to hell. And it was tearing Paul apart. Turn back to chapter 9, how, how this section 9 through 11 began. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. The implication is there that they are accursed and they are cut off apart from Christ. And Paul just has this passion. And really the application is this. Do you have? Do you have such a heart for those who are lost? Does it, does it tear you up, your inner soul, that those you know and love are on the way to a Christless eternity? Have you ever wept for a soul of another? As apart from Christ. I, I love the prayer of John Knox. He says, give me Scotland or I die. Do you know anything of the heart of Jesus who looked upon the crowds and compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd? I mean, this is the whole reason Jesus came to earth. The, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. 
And God's purpose is our purpose. Right? We, we, uh, God has left us on earth to seek the lost, to give them the hope of the gospel. And it starts really here with a heart for the lost. To tell them the good news. Remember the stories that Jesus told. He told the story of a shepherd with a hundred sheep. One was lost. So he leaves in 91.9. Goes after the sheep. Or he told the story of a woman who had ten coins. One was lost and so she lights the lamp, sweeps the house and searches until she finds it. Or the man who had two sons and one of them demanded an inheritance and went away and squandered all of uh, everything in reckless living. But he came back. And every time in these stories, when, when the lost is found, there's great rejoicing. And the rejoicing is really a, a emblematic of the sorrow in being lost. It's what Jesus described. Is that, is that your heart? Do you have a sorrow for lost people? Do you have a heart for those you know who are lost? That was Paul's heart as he desired their salvation, but he showed that heart by praying for them. Verse 1b. He was praying for the lost. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Here is Paul's praying for the salvation of the Jews. Now, what is, what is particularly most important, or maybe interesting at this point, maybe it's most interesting, maybe not most important, but significant nonetheless, is that Paul says these words after the clearest statements in the Bible of the sovereignty of God in salvation. In, in chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, Paul spoke about the unbreakable chain of salvation. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, right before the dawn of time, God foreknew people and he predestined them to come to faith in him. In time, he called them and he justified them. In the future, there's a promised eternity that is in the past tense. It is so promised of the glorification. And and this chain of salvation is is unbreakable. What God begins, he brings to completion. And it it speaks about our salvation is dependent upon God. God is the one that foreknew us long before we foreknew him. And in chapter 9 and verse 11, Paul shows how God's calling is all of God. Right? Though they, that's Jacob and Esau, chapter 9, verse 11, were not yet born, had done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Rachel, their mother, was told, the older will serve the younger, as is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And Paul goes over the top here, just saying it's not about works. It's not about foreseen works. It's not before they've done anything good or bad. It's all about election. It's all about God's choice. God is sovereign in our salvation. That's what he says in chapter 9, verse 16. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And in verse 18, so then God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, there are many who come to this point. In Romans chapter 9 and say, no, 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 wait a minute. That, that just can't be. That, that God is... That's, how can you evangelize then? How can you pray? I mean, if this is the case, it's all decided anyway. Why, why pray? Why, why evangelize? If God has chosen those, what's the point? God's going to save them anyway. Why pray? God's determined it all anyway. And so they reject Romans 9. Because... It seems incompatible with their understanding of evangelism and prayer. I just say this. Apparently, Paul didn't get the memo. 
Because for Paul, he knew all this, and yet he has his heart for evangelism, his heart for prayer. So if you come to the conclusion that the things of Romans chapter 9 deny evangelism prayer, you've just denied Paul. Paul's consistent with himself. And in fact, Romans chapter 10 is one of the most evangelistic chapters in, in all the Bible. It says in chapter 10, verse 9, If you confess with your mouth Jesus Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's the promise. You'll be saved if you believe these things. And then Paul's burden, is the burden of Romans, is to get out and preach that. Verse 13, Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And he says, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? The idea is that we need to go out and people need to hear so they can be saved. It's not, it's not this, we'll just back off and God will save the heathen regardless of what we do. No, they're lost, but God is working and so we go and we pray. People need to hear God's word. We need to tell them of good news that Christ died for our sins. They simply need to believe and call on the name of the Lord and they too can know forgiveness. See, the sovereignty of God doesn't nullify evangelism. It doesn't nullify prayer. Nor even prayer for those who are lost. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. See, Romans 9 doesn't nullify Romans 10. And Romans 10 doesn't nullify Romans 9. They are happy friends. They're compatible together. They play well together. And Paul isn't swayed by philosophical musings of the wise who lift up their own logic above what the Scripture says. He simply embraces the sovereignty of God, the responsibility of man, and presses on by praying for the lost. And the application here is really obvious, right? Are you praying for lost people? I mentioned about Easter invites, right? Are you praying maybe that you can give a, a business card to and invite people who need to hear Christ? I mean, that's just like an open way. I mean, I find in, in my evangelism, it's easy to talk about church. Like, like even someone, someone this week, I kind of know them a little bit through my pool endeavors, and they, and they said, so tell me about your church. What's your church like? I could talk to them about church. I kind of slid it into the gospel, but here you can just talk about church. You go to church on Easter Sunday here. Well, why don't you come? And just maybe just to start a conversation, or maybe, a, maybe an invite would be there. But are you praying for the lost? Last couple of weeks, I've given you two points of application. I just want to mention them here because I think that they are are helpful and profitable, whether you pick them up or, or not. I've mentioned praying Luke chapter 10, verse 2, where Jesus said, The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. I have an appointment on my phone, 10.02 to 10.03 every day. Just gives me an alarm. And I just say, you know what? I've got to pray for the laborers to go out into the, the vineyard, to go out into the harvest. And so every day at 10.02 in the morning is a reminder for me to pray. Uh, I've given you a second point of application. This is a, a seven for heaven list. Just it's how easy this is. Put it in your Bible. Put a sticky note in your Bible. Just seven people that are in your life who are unsaved, who need to be saved. It's Paul's heart here. And these are easy people to pray for when 10.02 comes up. Now, if this works for you, that'd be great. If it doesn't work for you, that's fine. But a sticky note like this, what's so, so nice about it, it's, it's easy. I can just rewrite these words because every time in your social circle, they're always changing, you're always meeting new people. Uh, some people are going out of your social circle. And, and so it's always, always kind of in and out. Just seven people in your life you're, you're praying for. So how often are you passionately praying as Paul is my heart's desire and prayer to God for them as they may be saved the challenge so 
applicable to many in our day. The third point here is that they have zeal. We're talking particularly now about the Jews, about this zeal that they have, is what what Paul says in verse 3, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance to knowledge. He's talking particularly about the Jews, but this is, this is applicable to many people today. Not just, not just religious righteous people, but many people today can have some zeal. Zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Zeal for God's a good thing. It's good for you in your life to live with a passion for the Lord. Uh, you, you can feel zeal when Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. There is just all of us. But, but he doesn't want disinterested obedience. He wants passion. He wants us to be zealous for him in his glory. When there was sin in the Israelite camp, Phineas was stirred with passion to do something about it. And you remember when there, there was sin and in the sight of Moses, the sight of the whole congregation, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, and the son of Aaron, the priest, he took a spear in hand and walked right past Moses and right past everybody, went into the camp where adultery was being committed and speared the man and the woman through the belly and that stopped the plague of God's wrath upon it. And I wouldn't suggest that activity today. Okay, you don't need to do that. But that was a different time when God was their king, when they were under the law, when direct revelation said you're, you're experiencing these plagues because of your sin. It's a perfect thing to do to turn away the wrath of God. And Phineas was commended with an eternal, perpetual priesthood because, as Numbers twenty five thirteen says, he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Zeal for God is a, is a good thing. Jesus had zeal for God. Remember in the temple when, when God's ways were being um, sold in the marketplace and these uh, money changers were there and he went in, he made a whip of cords and he drove all of them out, the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples, remember, was written, Psalm 69, I think, zeal for your house will consume me. Passion is a good thing. Zeal for God's a good thing. And the Jews of Paul's day had it. They had, right? He says, I'm bearing them witness. They have this zeal for God. And you just read the, the gospel accounts and you can see the zeal that they had. So just, just think about Jesus clashing with the Pharisees. They, they battled over the meaning of the Sabbath. They were zealous for the Sabbath. They, they questioned Jesus about the tradition of the elders because they were so zealous in keeping God's law, they wanted to keep the, the traditions as well. And these things were really an expression of their zeal. In fact, one occasion, Jesus told this parable of the Pharisee who stood up and prayed. Remember that Luke 18. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, he says. Like extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even pointing that sinner over there, the tax collectors, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But I... That's a bad example, right? But that was typical. They fast twice a week. How many of you are fasting twice a week? Paying tithes of all that I get, even down to the mint and cumin and spices. Everything they have, they're so meticulous about it. They have this zeal for God. But this zeal was a bad thing because it was devoid of knowledge. That's exactly what we're talking about. Verses 2 and 3. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not... According to knowledge, they, they lacked knowledge. Now, and I just say this is true of many today. You, you can think about, I mean, it was Paul's talking about the Jews of his day. 
But many are like this today. There are many people zealous for their religion. Uh, I think about those involved in ritualistic religions, right? Where they're, they're going and they're just kind of involved in all this ritual stuff. And they could be zealous for that. Church all the time, always going, never missing mass, right? Always being there, always doing the sacraments, always get, they're very zealous, very meticulous. Or I can even think of others who are, are very zealous, right? And their, their experience is everything, right? And the most zealous people are the most, are the most seen as the most uh, mature people because in some circles, right? It's your, your spirituality is demonstrated by your zeal. What's all important is your zeal. How, how active are you? How lively are you? How aggressive are you? How, how, but yet, Oftentimes without knowledge. Other religions, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, I mean, you, you name them. There are many, many religions. You see so many devout, committed people. My travels over to uh, Southeast Asia, I've seen many a, a Buddhist monk wearing this orange, reddish garb about themselves. I've been to a Buddhist, Buddhist monastery where they're chanting and they're just praying and praying and praying. These people give themselves to praying very passionate, very, very zealous for spirituality. It, it says, though, that they lacked knowledge. In some regards, like Christopher McCandless, who lacked knowledge about living um, in, the, in the outer, in the wilderness. But incredibly zealous they can be, and it says they lacked knowledge. It's, it's interesting, in our society today, there is a, a religion called sincerityism. How many people? It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're what? Sincere. As if, right, that, like, totally devoid of all that matters that you're zealous for something. In fact, that's why these people make this pilgrimage back to this bus, is because he was zealous for something. And so people want to kind of cap zealous for the outdoors individualism. And so people want to, like, identify with that. But lacking knowledge. Now, it's interesting here about. The knowledge that they lacked isn't, isn't that they lack knowledge. It's not like they're stupid, okay? We're, we're saying that they, they lack the most important thing. Because, I mean, there, there are Islamic scholars and Buddhist scholars and Catholic scholars. And there, there, there are these scholars, right, in religion that know a lot. Um, in, in helping my daughter in her world religions class, I was really struck by learning about Scientology. Didn't know much about Scientology before. And so I looked at it. It's all a religion of the, the mind and self-help. It's pop psychology come into religion is really what it is. That, that people have problems. But Scientology, we're going we're gonna to help work through how you can get these problems better. High education, high intellectual, high sort of knowledge, sort of self-help religion. But I would say they have a zeal... But they lack knowledge. Now, in the case of the Jews, the, the Jews knew a lot about God. In fact, it could be easily argued today that they know they knew more about God than you do. And, and I say that um, because the scriptures were their lives. It was their school curriculum. They didn't have whatever Bob Jones and Rebecca. They, they had the scriptures was was their curriculum. And the scriptures were their conversation. Scriptures were their, their life. But today, what, what's happened is the, the internet has totally drowned out the sound of the scriptures in our life because there's, there's global news, the click of a mouse. And um, your friends are at the click of a mouse too. Instagram, Facebook, you can just see what's happening in their lives. On top of that, they're enticing viral cat videos to watch. Right? You're just watching all these, this, this stuff. And, and, and what happens is the scripture just, just loses out. But, but when you have nothing... 
When you have no internet, no radio, no newspaper, the only written thing you have is the scriptures. In fact, the only thing you have written is the scriptures in the synagogue. You've got to go there to read it. That, that's like your intellectual stimulation. In fact, even 200 years ago in our country, when uh, uh, it was being expanded right, and growing, we didn't have all these things. The church became the central center hub, and pastors became sources of information, and this was entertainment. I mean, you guys can go watch anything online. You can listen to anybody speak on, on your podcast. You can do that. And so it, scriptures kind of can, can go out so easily, but not so in the days of the Apostle Paul. They knew the scriptures very well. But... The idea here is when Paul says they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, they lacked a particular knowledge, which all other world religions lack as well. Yeah, they have much knowledge, but there's this particular knowledge they lacked. And it's explained in verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own through their zealousness. They did not submit to God's righteousness. The Jews of Paul's day lacked a knowledge of the righteousness of God. In many ways, I mean, they're they're like the the Jews of Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said, many, many are going to come to me on that day and saying, Lord, Lord, let me in. And they're going to claim all the different things they did. Did we not prophesy in your name? And did we not cast out demons in your name? And do mighty works in your name? Here were zealous people but they lack knowledge. Jesus says, I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So they knew a lot. They were doing a lot, but they lacked the particular knowledge they need. They lacked the knowledge of the righteousness of God. And in fact, that's why when dealing with Jesus, they were arguing about Sabbath keeping and and arguing about traditions and, and yet rejecting Jesus because they didn't understand about the righteousness of God in Jesus. They wanted to establish their own righteousness through the the law and keeping of the traditions. See, because the Jews, in their zealousness, it was all about them and what they did. They're keeping the righteousness of their own righteousness and that God would merit them for being good. And the classic example of this, of course, is Martin Luther. I mean, we, we went over this during Reformation Month at Rock Valley Bible Church this past November, the 500th anniversary of Luther nailing the theses in the door at Wittenberg. But of any people, Martin Luther tried to establish his own righteousness. He said, I was a good monk, and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say, if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear this out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils and prayers and reading and other work. He was, he was striving for righteousness, but when it came to the righteousness of God, he was empty. He couldn't get there. But here's the key. He knew that he couldn't get there. And that was the breakthrough. When he saw that the righteousness of God wasn't something that he attained to, but something that Jesus did for us, Jesus attained, then Luther's eyes opened up. And this is the knowledge that the Jews lack. This is the knowledge that people with zeal apart from Jesus lack. Luther said this, my situation was this, that although impeccable as a monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would satisfy him whatsoever. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry and righteous God, but rather I hated him and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the the righteousness of God 
and the statement that the just shall live by faith in Romans 1.17. He said, And I grasp the justice of God is that righteousness by which through faith and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. And therefore I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in a greater love. And this passage, Romans 1.17 of Paul, became to me a gate of heaven where he understood that it's the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus. The righteous will live by their faith. And that's the fifth and final point here that the, the Jews of Paul's day, they, they had this zeal, they, they lacked this knowledge, and fundamentally they lacked this faith. And you can see this there in, uh, in verse 4 when Paul says this, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So verse 3 speaks about how they are ignorant of this righteousness of God. They, they sought to establish their own. And, and rather than submitting to the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus, they, they wanted to stand on their own. And therefore, essentially, they lacked faith, is what Paul is saying. And the idea is you don't obtain the righteousness of God by yourself, but you obtain the righteousness of God through faith. And that's what the Jews of Paul's day needed. And that's what, what we need and there's the gospel. You, you believe in Jesus. And, and you become righteous through the righteousness of Christ. There can't be any better message than that. It's the message that unsaved people need to hear. It's the message that we need to escape the torrents of hell and of death. Now the key to understanding verse 4 is this little word end. Christ is the end of a law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And that, that word end in the Greek is just like it is in, in, in English. It just has this idea. It can have, have different means. The end can be like the fulfillment. It can mean the goal. It can mean the, the termination. And um, scholars kind of talk about what, what, how are all these. And, and I think in some regards there's a mesh of all of them. Because Jesus certainly was a fulfillment of the law. That Jesus was the end. He was like the, the, um, the one who fulfilled the law. Uh, he said in Matthew chapter 5, he says, Do not think I came to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill them. That the, the law was ended in Jesus right, as the fulfillment. And, and the law also was the goal of what Jesus was. Because in Matthew 11 and verse 13, it speaks about the law prophesying. And we don't think about that often. We think about the prophets prophesying. But it talks about the law prophesying. I think it's prophesying of this perfect man to come, who was Jesus. And also termination. And certainly when Jesus come, portions of the law ended. The sacrifices of the law ended. The, the tabernacle ended. The priestly system ended. The eating laws ended. And that all ended with the coming of Jesus. It terminated with, with him. Now, there's portions of the law that continues on. The moral law, like the grace commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This, this moral aspect of the law continues on, so it's not like it finished everything. But there's some aspect where Jesus terminated the law. And it's difficult to know if you're going to try to say, okay, which, which of these things is it talking about? A fulfillment, a goal, a termination? And I think there's a kind of a culmination of all those things because Paul could have said that he was the fulfillment of the law, or he was the goal of the law, or he stopped the law. He could have said that, but he uses the word end to kind of give us this picture about how ultimately everything is pointing to Jesus, and he's finishing the law in every way possible.
I mean, I think about in a prayer meeting, we, we talked Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us. Let us run with perseverance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Because it's all about Jesus. It's all ending there. It's all in Him is where the righteousness is. We look to Jesus and not to ourselves. And really, it's a, a great place for us to transition into the Lord's Supper, is it not? So we think about Christ Jesus being the end of a law for righteousness to everyone who believes that, that Jesus is the, 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 where, the, the place where all of us go as we believe. And even this whole idea about ending thing or fulfillment, if you come to the Seder meal, you'll see this in its fulfillment, but when he took the bread and the cup, it was all about do this in remembrance of me. Right? It's, it's me we're looking to now. It's not Moses that you've been looking to for 1,400 years. It's me because he's the end. He's the goal. He's the termination. And that's what we look to. So don't look to yourselves. If you look to yourselves, you'll be just like the Jews who you can have all the zeal in the world, but you're not going to get any place. A mouse on a treadmill may run really, really fast, but they're not going to get any place. Because they don't understand the righteousness of God. And you can work and work and work and go to church and be involved and say your prayers. And, and apart from trust in Christ, it's all going to be meaningless and empty. So don't look to your own way. Don't, don't think your zeal is going to make it. But realize that it is, it is looking to Christ that makes it, that brings you into heaven. It's the, the, he's the end of a law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You just believe in Him. And that's what this Lord's Supper is, is about. It's for us who believe in Jesus. So if you're visiting with us today, if you believe in Christ, by all means, celebrate the supper with us. If not, just let it, let it pass. Because it's for those who know that Jesus is their end, their goal, terminating the law. Yes, everything is, is there. I'm trusting in Christ. And that's our reminder here at, at uh, Easter time, this Advent season, this, this Lenten season, if you will, the anticipating the death of of Christ and His crucifixion and resurrection as we do that. So let's bow our heads and prepare to take of that. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul speaks of how we need to examine ourselves. Before we do this, and I just encourage you to examine yourself and just say, where is your trust lie?